for the Life of the World is a production of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. Visit us online at faith.yale.edu. In my mind, I know that my people came, they were brought in chains. They survived. They were among those who survived the Mid-Atlantic Passage, the Transatlantic Passage. They suffered incredibly grueling oppression in the Caribbean, and yet they survived. They found ways to, to cope. They found their pool of spirit to help them in the project of resilience. And so that's the stock I come from. We're also very mixed with European people, right? So there was a lot of rape in our family. So there's a lot of brokenness that is passed down from generation to generation to generation to generation. And so I'm just very aware of who I have been and also aware that their DNA literally lives in me. So I literally am because they were. This is For the Life of the World, a podcast about seeking and living a life worthy of our humanity. I'm Evan Rosa with the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. Humans come with a history. When Lisa Sharon Harper says of her ancestors, I am because they were, think of the weight that such a foundational fact carries for our world. It speaks of dependence. It speaks of our radical contingency. It speaks of resilience. It speaks of a kind of filial resonance, the ways in which our families' lives reverberate and hum in us here, now. This statement, I am because they were, lest you wave it off as obvious. Reflect for a moment on the temptation to believe in the falsehood of self-making. We tend to scrub our histories, forget or euphemize the past, failing to appreciate the nuances and particularity of our unique family story and opt instead for the phony greatness of individual identity. And at its worst, abstracting from the texture of our family, genetic, ethnic, cultural, and chronological history can lead to outright oppression and dehumanization. Again, humans come with a history. Today, Miroslav Wolf is joined by his friend, Lisa Sharon Harper, a writer, activist, and Christian leader who has for many years advocated for peace and justice in legislative governance, immigration and healthcare reform, alleviation of poverty, justice across race and gender, and renewed civic engagement. In each of these spheres, her books and columns consistently remind us that, in her words, everything wrong can be made right. She is founder and president of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap in our nation by designing forums and experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and common action. In this episode, Miroslav and Lisa discuss the significance of narrative history for understanding ourselves and our current cultural moment, the sequence of repeated injustices that have haunted America's past and directly impacted Black Americans like Lisa's family for hundreds of years. And they talk about the necessary conditions for true repair, the role of reparations in the pursuit of racial justice, and the goodness of belonging. Thanks for listening. Lisa, I'm uh, really delighted that you can join us for this podcast. It's been a very long time since you and I last spoke, and much has happened Uh, in the meantime. You have shot into national prominence as anti-racist activist, and I wanted to catch up. But more importantly, I think I wanted our listeners to get a chance to get to know you. And Mm -hmm. so it may be good to start with a little bit of history, your history. You you may recall that one of my favorite philosophical temptations is Friedrich Nietzsche. Yeah. And he had mentioned, he emphasizes that kind of the hereditary sin of philosopher is lack of historical sense. And sometimes I feel that's also my sin, that I don't sufficiently Mm -hmm. engage in history. And, Mm -hmm. And yet our whole biblical account, narrative, is a narrative, is a story. So maybe it would be good for us to to visit your story. How did you get here? Can you tell us your story? (laughs) How did I get here? Oh my goodness. 
Wow. That's a fun story. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, I, I, whenever anybody asks me, you know, who are you or, or is that question like that? It's, it's impossible for me to answer without going back into my ancestry. My next book is coming out February of next year in time for Black History Month. And in having done 30 years of research for mm-hmm. that book, I am full of my family stories. And I understand very clearly now how I am because they were mm-hmm. very much so. My mom, our family on her side has people who were free since the 1740s. And before that, they were indentured servants. They were black indentured servants or mixed race. Also on her side, you have people who were enslaved as early as late 1700s, as far back as we can go in South Carolina and probably were brought there from Virginia. According to Ancestry.com DNA, our family stretches back to the earliest Africans in Virginia and Maryland also. On my father's side, doing that research has been so fascinating because they came from the Caribbean through Puerto Rico. So they came and they were all here by 1925, 1930. And they settled in the South Bronx in New York City. And, but they had, according again to Ancestry.com DNA and also 23andMe, we can trace them to the Caribbean as early as 1750. So in my mind, I know that My people came, they were brought in chains. They survived. They were among those who survived the Mid-Atlantic Passage, the Transatlantic Passage. They suffered incredibly grueling oppression in the Caribbean, and yet they survived. They found ways to, to cope, and they found their pool of spirit to help them in the project of resilience. And so that's the stock I come from. We're also very mixed with European people, right? So there was a lot of rape in our family. So there's a lot of brokenness that is passed down from generation to generation to generation to generation. And so I'm just very aware of who I have been and also aware that their DNA literally lives in me. Mm -hmm. So I literally am because they were. That's really fascinating. What struck me when you were talking about your history is both the incredible pain caused by others, but then also your comment about their resilience. Yeah. I have always, for years now, I've tried to think about uh, this question by Theodore Adorno, whether a true life is possible within the false one. Now, the life that they were brought into and the way they were brought to this life was as false as lives can be. Yeah. And yet there was something of the true life shining. Is that what you were telling me? Yes, it is. I I would answer that question, yes, because if not, then African-Americans have no possibility of living a true life because we are brought and have been brought since 1619 into a false one into a life where we are told from birth that we are not fully human. At least since 1662 in Virginia, we have been declared intrinsically enslavable and in perpetuity according to the law. And so I believe, especially I I see so many stories of resistance, like resistance to the lie that we were told, to the lie we were born into to the shackles, which were a lie that instituted, protected, and and enforced that lie. And yet there are people in my family, and not just my family, there are African-Americans who struggled, who resisted from the very beginning. I have a sometimes great aunt who owned land. Her sister, Betty, bought land. And In order for her to own that land in Maryland at the time, she had to play a black woman's tax. They literally Mm -hmm. charged free black women an extra tax to own land. It's where we get the terminology today, black tax, the black tax. You have to pay more to be free if you're black. And so, but she, there's actually a record in the tax record. You can Mm -hmm. find this in the tax record. It says the tax recorder actually recorded yep. Betty Fortune. She she chased me off the land with a gun. 
and mm-hmm. and she refused to pay the tax. And she's <laughs> of the fortune stock, right? So she's uh, like, she's t- tracing her right back to fortune. My our our first ancestor born on this land in 1687. So yeah, that from the very earliest times we resisted. Yeah. In fact, the reason the police exist today is because of our resistance then. It was the rebellions that were happening all over Virginia and North Carolina, Maryland, South Carolina, in the 1600s that the very first police patrols were were created in order to round up and control people of African descent who were saying, no, you're making me live according to a lie. That's extraordinary courage that it takes to do that and to stand. Uh, I mean, wonderful story, chasing somebody off your property with a gun yes. for, for a stupid tax you shouldn't be paying in the first place, of course. Yes. One thing for people that are oppressed to resist, but it's the other uh, thing for a nation as a whole mm. to have a history and engage with such people and stand before these historical junctures. Mm-hmm. And you have written and uh, thought about those roads taken and roads not taken. Do we find ourselves today at, at the juncture, do you think? You know, we definitely do find ourselves at that juncture. One thing that I am convinced of, again, after having researched the history, is we had choices the whole time. At every single point, we had a choice. In 1619, we had a choice. When the White Lion first sailed onto the shores of Jamestown and offered the Jamestown colony these enslaved Africans who had been pirated off of a Dutch ship and brought onto an English warship. And they were not expecting them. The Jamestown people had no idea they were coming. They had never had enslaved people on their territory before. They had a choice that day. Should we turn them back and send them back to their home country? Should we be Christian about it? Should we actually follow our faith? Or should we accept this free labor, these people who have been stolen from their land and conscripted to us for no reason? We don't deserve this. They chose to enslave. Right. Right. In 1662, <laughs> when Virginia passed its law that said that people of African descent, or no, sorry, that citizenship should be determined at that point from thenceforth, no longer through the line of the father, which was English common law, but instead through the lineage of the mother, which is Partis, the Roman law of Partis. At that point, they had a choice. They could have said, no, we're going to remain. We're going to continue to have citizenship go through the line of the father, and we're going to suffer the consequences of that, which is to lose the enslaved people that we are giving birth to because we keep raping our women. We're going to stop raping the women that we own. Maybe even, you know, maybe we shouldn't be owning these people in the first place. Maybe we could actually just make this, you know, an actual condition of servitude if they actually did do something wrong and call it a day. But no, they didn't. They decided to take advantage of the lack of political power of the people of African descent, and they racialized slavery with that first law in 1662 by saying, no, we're going to move citizenship. In other words, because in England, you could not enslave another British citizen. So we're going to move that to the line of the mother. And if the mother is black and enslaved, then no longer is that child a citizen. Therefore, that child cannot claim in the courts that they should be set free, which they were doing and they were winning their cases. Mm. So they had a choice then, and they made a choice toward, toward exploitation of the image of God. And it goes like that. I mean, at all these junctures, they had choices and they failed. And we are at that juncture again. George Floyd presented the world with the truth of who we are last year. And it was at that time, I don't know what it was, and I'm sure you saw it too. Everybody has acknowledges this now, but there was kind of like a scales off the eyes thing that happened for white folk all over the world. Like they all of a sudden saw the reality that systemic evil exists. And they are guilty of benefiting from a society 
that does that. And we have a choice now. We have a choice. We have a choice whether, and honestly, the Republican Party has had a choice and they have chosen, they've made their choice. They've decided to dig their heels in and, and continue to propagate the big lie that, that Trump lost the election in order to maintain power, which has been the, the objective at every juncture has been to maintain white male power. But they don't have to do that. And we don't have to do that as a society. We have a choice. We can choose to pass the Fix to the Voting Rights Act. We can choose to pass sweeping legislation that would rework our policing system in a way that actually gives public safety, not just policing of Black bodies. We have a choice right now. We have a choice right now. And it is possible, Miroslav, I am sure it is possible for us to choose well. The only question is, will we exercise our faith enough to choose well? It's interesting that you mentioned faith in this regard, right? Mm -hmm. It's almost, you could almost put it also, um, will we exercise and put to work our proper humanity. Yes. <laughs> right? That's true. Uh, but but there there is there is a faith involved in it, faith in who we as a nation, faith in who we as individuals are. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the most disturbing things is to see Christians even today uh, espouse something like Christian nationalism. Oh my goodness. I have been at this through my social media, Twitter feed, but I know mm-hmm. this has been one of the important issues issues for you. This is a kind of deep concern for you. W- what do we need to say about Christian nationalism in America today? Uh, it seems like very deeply rooted. Yeah, it is. It's actually very deeply rooted. And it's funny because most Christian nationalists would never call themselves Christian nationalists. Most Christian nationalists just go to a church with a flag in the background and and they sing My Country Tis of Thee on the 4th of July in church. And they talk about Jesus as if he was born in their suburb and hangs out with them at Starbucks every day, right? Like that's <laughs> that's how they talk about Jesus. Yeah. But they don't recognize the reality that Jesus was not born here, is not American (laughs) at all, and actually was born on the underside of empire altogether and was born brown in the context of an explicitly white supremacist nation and and, and empire, Rome. And I say that because the philosophers that influenced Rome were Aristotle and, and Plato and Aristotle, uh, many scholars would say, actually, when he thought of what it meant to be a human being, he would have seen a white man. He would have thought of a white man who was able-bodied. And that if that's the mindset of the empire, which it was, it's why the motto of Rome and the motto of all of the empires in that lineage of the Greek empires, Roman empire, British empire, is make the world as we are. Make the world Rome, make the world Greece, make the world England. And England succeeded, actually. You know, they literally did colonize the world. And so when we think about church in America, I I would just argue that the majority, the majority of white evangelical churches in particular, and especially in the South, probably could be, have vestiges, if not could be named fully Christian nationalists. Why do I say that? Because the white Christian nationalist project is to do one thing, is to preserve and protect the power, the assumed rule of white Christian men on this land. That's what it exists to do. And I think that when you look at many of our white fundamentalist churches and many of our white evangelical churches in particular, that is, that's the ethic that they espouse. The, it's, it's not, I believe, an unchristian ethic. It's an ethic of domination. You also see it in their eschatology, right? Where you, and not even just their eschatology, also their understanding of who we are as a nation, that America is like the new Jerusalem. We are the new chosen people. 
it's it's just a bad read of the text. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I sometimes feel feel it would be it would be almost good if it was bad reading, simply bad reading of the text, mm-hmm. right? Because you could then point and, and persuade, but somehow that it's so entrenched. And yeah. I was wondering what you would think. Uh, again, one of my things that I sometimes uh, have come to think recent, maybe ten years or so, that Jesus has become a moral stranger to us. Mm. Things that were really important to him don't matter to us. Mm-hmm. And things that are really important to us didn't seem to matter to yes, him at all. At all. <laughs> and it would subvert Christian nationalism overnight if we were mm-hmm. to give credence to, to who Jesus really was. Yeah. Do you have a similar sense? Is it, it's clearly there in, well, it may be in, in a kind of broader culture, but in different subcultures, do you see it as well? I think absolutely that's true, but I don't think that it's just that we have forgotten our moral Jesus. We are, we're disconnected from moral Jesus. I just don't, I really don't think that the white Christian church, the Western Christian church, uh, since Constantine understood who Jesus really was. So I think that where we are right now is the natural outcoming. It's the natural results of the logics of empire that have been embedded in Western Christianity since Constantine. And, and, and it's just, I mean, think about it. I, I, I've, I've thought about this and it, it literally blows my mind. Not one person in the entire Bible, not one person with a speaking role. No, I shouldn't say that. Only one person in the entire Bible with a speaking role was European. Only one, one, and his name was Pilate. He killed (laughs) Jesus. He's the guy who killed Jesus, right? Mm. And I'm not saying, you know, you know, I'm not saying anything, but what is actually there, that is the truth. And yet we have centered the interpretation of this brown Afro-Asian text in the halls of empire. So it's the halls of European empire that have interpreted this text to us for centuries, for, for millennia. So for more than a millennia. So of course we don't know Jesus. And when the scales start to fall, when we start seeing, oh my goodness, like we've been taught wrong. It's an existential crisis for so many people of European descent because they, they feel duped. They feel like they've been lied to. And they have shaped their entire lives and institutions around mm-hmm. this big lie. The big lie that God is white, that Jesus is white, that Moses was white, that Mary was white, that Eve was white, and everybody else is abnormal. Everybody else is slightly Inferior. different. Inferior. Yeah, you, you took it there. There you go, right? But that's not true. This whole book is written by brown people who were serially oppressed, serially enslaved in the context of their oppression, about their resilience, about the faith that got them through that. So you just, you cannot understand this book if you are reading it from the halls of empire. You just can't which I think is why we are in the faith crisis that we're in right now. People are leaving the church in droves because they're beginning to see that what they've been told is not true. So as you're sketching this rather bleak picture of (laughs) Christianity today, at the same time, I'm I'm thinking you've written about restoration. Mm -hmm. You've written about what you call the new seed. And I'm not sure exactly what you mean by new seed, but, mm-hmm. but I sense something really hopeful there. Yeah. Can you say a little bit more about the new seed? Thank you. I'm literally laughing out loud because I, I don't think of this as being so hopeless because I do have so much hope inside of me, but it's because I guess I know the other part of the story, which is that redemption is possible. Restoration mm-hmm. is possible. Repent right, right. because repentance is possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so confession is possible. Repentance is possible. And truth telling and seeking is possible. That's the reason why my last book is called The Very Good Gospel How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right. I believe it. Everything wrong can be made right. 
And everything, the word there that was really fascinating to me, everything. Everything. (laughs) Tell me about that word. Everything (laughs) wrong. I believe because it all rests in our capacity to repent. Mm -hmm. Now, the question of whether it will be made right is another question. Yeah. But it can be because we all are human. If you are human, you have the ability to be transformed. Is that for you an eschatological cope as well, and partly for present, but partly also utopian eschatological? I do believe that there will be a time when we get to that last chapter of Revelation, Hmm. and there the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is no longer there. It is only the tree of life, and spans the river of life, Hmm. and the fruit of the tree feeds the nations and the, the twelve tribes and the leaves are for the healing of the nations. I believe we're going to get there. I do. Mm -hmm. But I don't think we get there without repentance. Yeah. So what do you mean exactly? Maybe that's where we can uh, explore Mm -hmm. this repentance, but both, it seems also uh, a a negative, right? But it's turning away from something that's negative towards something positive. Can can you spell out a little bit uh, what you mean by repentance and what it means concretely? Yeah. in situation of uh, racialized human hierarchies uh, yeah. and so forth. Yeah. Well, also, I was sitting at the table with my friend Craig Stewart, who is um, in Cape Town, uh, South Africa, and I was there to speak for the Justice Conference a few years ago. And we were having dinner, his whole family and, you know, kids, and we were having a really great conversation. And we started talking about how to make things right in South Africa. Now, they've already had their democratic election. They have democracy now, one person, one vote. But yet the economic situation in South Africa has not really changed. They still have very much the same situation they had under apartheid. Now they just have economic apartheid. They have de facto segregation, just like we do in America, because we never fully repented of Jim Crow and redlining. They have de facto segregated jobs, segregated water, segregated electricity, Mm -hmm. segregated air, just like us. And he was saying that who gets the reparations? Like who gets the repair? Who gets it? See, that's, I feel like that is a smokescreen. That is something that is not really at the heart of the, the real question. The real question is not who gets the repair. The real question is when was it broken? And how did it break? Because when you go back to the genesis of the break, you go back to the beginning and you ask, how did it break? Then you start there. You go back and you claim a do-over. Can we do this over? Can we start again? In other words, can we do right what we did wrong? Then now there are some things that will just always be lost. We can't actually do over because people have died. We've lost lives. So restitution is never going to be complete because people have literally lost lives and they can't be, they can't raise from the dead. Unfortunately, people, most people are not going to be able to do that. So there you go. But what we can do is we can solve for the, the heart of the problem, the heart of the break, which came the moment that that first European explorer landed on the land, looked at the people and said, they're not civilized. So therefore, they are not called by God to exercise dominion on this land. We are. And they claimed the land through the doctrine of discovery or the Romanist pontifex, which became the doctrine of discovery. They erased the image of God from the people who lived on that land. So what would repentance look like? Repentance looks like going to the people, original people of that land. And asking, what do you say we should do in order for things to be made well with you? We get this example from David, who was king after Saul had committed near genocide against the Gibeonites. And they came to him knocking on his door and said, Mr. David, after he had gone to God praying, saying, we have a famine in our land, God, and I don't know why we have this famine. What do What's this famine about? And then there's like a knock, 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 knock. (laughs) I just love, I love the scripture. It's so funny that way. So knock, knock, knock. And they go, Mr. David, Saul tried to kill all of us and he wasn't supposed to. And he goes, ah, that's why we have a famine in the land. Hmm. And what does he do? 
He doesn't say, okay, let me get my counsel together and we'll figure out how to make this well. He doesn't say go home, which is what most of our politicians would say today. They wouldn't even try to deal with it. They would just try to contain the problem contained by containing them. Instead, what he says is, how do you say, what do you say I should do for you in order for things to be made well with you? And they tell him, and it is costly because oppression is costly. So of course the remedy will be costly, but it's not an eye for an eye. I mean, an eye for an eye would have been, would have been, you know, genocide on your side, but they didn't call for that. And God blesses the the outcome. Yeah. You know, it's interesting talking about forgiveness and repentance and then restitution mm-hmm. generally in, in kind of theories evangelical and others also of maybe not so much catholic of repentance somehow restitution gets dropped i remember my father telling me mm. when he came to faith how he went back to his village when he was a 10 year old boy and was stealing from the orchards peach or apple and wherever he could remember that he took something he said i needed to go talk to the people, confess wow. what I have done, and offer to restore to the extent that I can whatever I have taken. As a 10-year-old boy. Wow. Because repentance means not just you let me off the hook, but I shouldn't have done it. If I've done it, I'm going to try to make it good to you. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll just say this and then ask you a question so that I don't end up pontificating here. Sure, sure. But my, my colleague here, John Kerr, says, well, what's the appropriate restitution? And he says, well, the appropriate restitution is such that if you have somebody doing something, some harm, you restore it to the position in which the person who has suffered harm would be indifferent between either that harm happening plus restitution occurring or no harm happening at all, right? Mm. So that harm plus restitution equals no harm. (laughs) Yeah. And that seems like that would be fair restitution. That's a very, very tall order. It is a tall order. But tallness of that order Mm. suggests something seriously needs to be done. Now, so I'm asking you now, what should we, what should America do? How should we proceed given the long history of oppression? Mm-hmm. How does, how do we begin to restore if we want to take it seriously, which I believe we should? Mm-hmm. I actually really prefer to call it what, re- what would repair look like? Yes. Okay, in America, right? What would yeah, I, like? I hear that very that's that's good. Right? Because reparation and restitution are very legal terms uh-huh. and you can and they also get us into the weeds and I'm not a legal scholar so I I can't say this is what it should look like. But what yeah, I can yeah. say is that there are multiple groups of African Americans that have actually said just like the Gibeonites said to David, this is what we require mm-hmm. in order for things to be made well with us. There are multiple groups of African-Americans over the centuries that have created those lists. And, and now, right now, Black Lives Matter, the movement for Black Lives, has actually created a really easy, basic list of mm-hmm. this is what it would take for reparations to be, um, to be made well. And then also in Congress right now, we have H.R. 40, which is now, I believe, S.R. 40. It says in Senate Resolution 40. 40 standing for the 40 acres and a mule that we never got, you know, the promised mm-hmm. 40 yeah. acres and a mule that people of African descent have never gotten. That there's just what we're saying we want is a study. We just want you to study what it would take. Yeah. And yeah. people are not willing to do that or, or it's pushing and we, it may even be, it may even pass this year, but it's taking everything to get that passed. So again, it goes back to what was the break? The break happened when we failed to recognize the image of God, the the intrinsic call and capacity of people of African descent to exercise dominion in the world. Going back to the first page of the Bible, when that very first, that very breath, that moment when God creates humanity and says, let us make humankind in our image, in our likeness, and let them have dominion, all in the same breath, that dominion 
in my book, is what is what defines what it means to be human. And so for people of African descent, what it meant since 1619 is that you do not get to exercise dominion on this land. And before that, going back to the 1400s and slavery as it began in, in Barbados and, and then also in, in South America, from that point forward, it became understood or an assumed logic in the lives and the logic of European Americans that people of African descent exist in order to give us free and cheap labor. That is a big lie. And that lie needs to be repented of. And the truth that needs to be embraced is that we were created by God to exercise dominion on earth along with all the rest of humanity. And so our first act of repentance will be to go to you and say, how do you say that it should be made well? And from there, to do it. Right. It's, it's actually, it actually is very simple. Yeah, and it, it seems, as the old saying goes, where there is a will, there is a way. Exactly. And in, in this particular case, people feel that so much is at stake, and so the will is lacking. It, 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 will, it will cost. It will cost. Uh, but you know what? Can I just say this very quickly, Miroslav? Yes, absolutely. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote this book that's right behind me. Where do we go from here? It was written in 1967. And he wrote this book months before he died. He's like summarizing all that he's learned since the passage of the Voting Rights Act and all that's happened. Like, what are the lessons that he's taking from all that came after that? And one of the things that he brings out in the very first chapter, which literally blew my mind, was that white backlash prevented them from doing what was right. Okay, I'm going to, I'm going to read. Can I read this to you? Do, absolutely. All right, I'm going to read yes. this. This is page six, page six. It's early in the book, right? <laughs> the assistant director of the Office of Economic Opportunity, Hyman Bookbinder, in a frank statement on December 29th, 1966, declared that the long-range costs of adequately implementing programs to fight poverty, ignorance, and slums particularly among African-Americans, will reach at that time, the bill was $1 trillion. Now it's going to be more than that now. He was not awed or dismayed by this prospect, but instead pointed out that the growth of the gross national product during the same period makes this expenditure comfortably possible. Comfortably possible. Like when you pull people out of poverty, when you correct for the systems and the structures that have kept them in poverty, that creates more capital to go into businesses. It creates more businesses, which create more jobs, which creates more money going into the marketplace. So it actually is a benefit to America to repair what it broke through the constructs of race. And he goes on to say, it is, he said, as simple as this. Quote, the poor can stop being poor if the rich are willing to become even richer at a slower rate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, I think I, I think that's that's exactly right. And the situation hasn't changed mm-hmm. since that uh, time. There is cost, but the cost is economically manageable, certainly. But yeah. there is benefit, and you certainly note also economic benefit that might be possible. But mm-hmm. I'm thinking there is human benefit. We cannot yeah. place this issue in a kind of cost-benefit analysis and then struggle over over that without yeah. forgetting that benefit to us isn't how thick is our pocketbook. Benefit to us is how rich is our humanity, yeah. how truly human we are, yeah, and yeah. it seems to me that should be at the center of the of concern. I think that's at the center of repentance, right? That's yes. at the center of forgiveness. Um, well, I asked somebody yesterday in a consulting conversation, what is power for? Hmm. What is power for? Why does it exist? What is it to do? What did and they say? One person 
said something kind of so esoteric that I forgot. <laughs> I don't remember it at all. The second one though, the second one said power is for our faith to flourish. Uh-huh. Like to, to, to get as many people to be as, as good a witness as possible so that we, as many people find Jesus as possible. Right. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. I thought, okay, all right. So but what is power for? <laughs> right? But, but, but really, but really. Now, how I would answer that question and how I, how I shared with them, how I've come to answer that question is, and again, it goes back to the very first page of the Bible, that power exists in order that we might protect and serve the rest of creation and each other. That's why power exists. Now, it's funny. It's actually really, isn't it ironic that the police have as their motto, protect and serve? And they actually are the most powerful civil servants in America because they get to kill. They get to actually take life. But what's, what we're finding now is that the, and as we look at our history and as we look at even just the last several years, that they take more lives than they are accountable for, and they're not accountable. And so, but power exists in order to protect and to preserve and to serve the creation that God created. To so in some it. sense, to, to make it flourish. To both make it flourish. Both exactly. protect it from being broken and then yeah. letting it letting it unfold. And, yes, and exactly. And the thing is, is that when we hoard power. When we, when we claim exclusive right to it, yeah. then what we're really doing is we're not, we're not acknowledging the reality that is real, that we are all connected. Yeah. And yeah. I can't hoard power over here and take it from you and think that that's not affecting me. It does affect me. All of a sudden, the hoarding, I love this actually comes from Brian McLaren's book, Everything Must Change, where he talks about that. In, in this current system that we have, the people have who have hoarded power, now you have to have a whole security industrial complex. <laughs> now, and this, it's nowhere is this more prevalent. Have I ever seen this more prevalent than in South Africa? Because Cape Town in particular is the most inequitable city on the planet. <laughs> and so you have more wealth and deeper poverty in that one place than you'll ever find. So you have people who have hoarded power And what do they have? Every single house has barbed wire around the tops of their homes because violence follows inequity, not poverty, but inequity. And so it affects us. When you hoard power, now you have to be concerned about keeping it. And then you have to resort to violence, resort to violence in order to keep it. And then that brings in the possibility of death in your life, death on your side or death into the other. No longer are we open-handed, open-fisted with power, which is how it was created to be. It was created to be shared in order that all might flourish. So when we look at reparation, when we look at repentance, it's repentance from the hoarding of power. It's repentance from the belief that God created only one race First of all, God didn't even create race. That was a human made thing. But that's, it's such a big lie that God created the Aryan race, which isn't even Aryan, but we, we get there, which right? Like the, race, the white so. race, exactly. <laughs> the white people, white folk yeah. to rule the world. This is ridiculous. And it's yeah. literally abiblical. And it literally has had huge repercussions. I mean, we wouldn't even have it comes from the lineage of empire. We wouldn't even have the cross if it wasn't for empire. Like violence comes from domination. Domination traces its way right back to the apple, to, to, <laughs> to, to, to the fall. I, personally, when I look at that, at Genesis 3, the and not just that, but when you trace it, trace it all the way Genesis 3 to Genesis 14, what you find is you find that the, the, the essence of the fall is domination. The essence of the fall 
is the propensity to dominate the other, to dominate the self through shame, to dominate God by saying, dominate God by saying, eh, God doesn't know what God's talking about, you know? And to think that God's going to try to dominate us, we run and hide from God. Um, to dominate the earth because we have to beat the earth to get anything out of it. And then to dominate each other, Cain and Abel, Lamech with his two lo- wives. Then you have the confusion of languages that leads to the very first ethnic enmity and the first mention of the word war in Genesis 14, which comes in the context of colonization, the domination of one king over multiple other smaller kings. And that just that's just Genesis 14. So the heart of it, the heart of sin is the separation between us that comes as a result of domination. To turn this at the end of our conversation the other way around and to ask if the the false life is a life of domination as you've been describing right now, how would you describe the true life? Life that is truly worth living, life that flourishes. Yeah. Well, I want to share two two things with you. One, the first is an image, and the second is a story. So the image first. We have built a world, and I say we generously, European Americans and people of European descent around the world have built a world built on the hierarchies of human belonging. And those hierarchies have been racialized, but they've also been genderized. They've been sexualized. Basically, at the very top of this ladder is white, straight, cisgendered Christian men, right? And then every, and they are the ones, just like Aristotle would have believed, are the full humans. And everybody else is a little bit less human until you get to the very bottom where people of African descent are non-human. We're not even animals. We're literally understood to be things. And according to law in the antebellum South, counted with the pitchforks and knives in the census. That's the human hierarchy that we've created. And I think that the principal sin of people of, of European descent has been actually not only to claim the top rung of that, that hierarchy, but actually to war against God for supremacy, to try to define everyone and everything, to try to control everyone and everything. And so what would repentance look like? Repentance would look like coming down off of and burning the ladders of human hierarchy and instead entering into a circle of human belonging and a circle of belonging with the rest of creation, because we are actually all brothers and sisters and they are our cousins, Hmm. you know, the trees and the birds and, and the foxes and the hounds, they're our cousins. And to come into a circle and to say, what do you need for things we made well with you and to serve and to protect the circle. Hmm. Now that that's not how we're trained to live. We really aren't. And, and I understand this now because I've just recently entered into middle classdom. <laughs> I bought a house, right? And so, I mean, I, I did. And I, for the first time in my life, I've, I rented up until this moment. And I bought a house and the house is literally one block from where my grandmother and my great-grandmother used to live, where my mom grew up. They were there for like 60 years in this community. And then we moved away and now I'm coming back. And I'm coming back in the midst of a gentrifying community. And I bought a nice house. (laughs) I was like, I want beautiful things. And so I bought a nice house. But what I realized when I got here is, whoa, there's kind of a struggle happening here. There's a struggle between those who are moving in and those who have been here, who are left behind, who didn't leave, didn't have the means to leave. So they've just been here the whole time. And I had a choice. I could see them as the enemy. I could gear up against them. I could live in the fear of them. Or I could allow those tapes that have been programmed into my head about the violence of Black men into my head, a Black head, a Black American woman's head. 
Hmm. But I live in white America, right? I live in an Ameri- okay. a, a white dominant nation. I could allow those tapes to rule me or I could allow brown Jesus to rule me. Hmm. Hmm. Brown Jesus, who was born a brown Mary and brown Joseph, comes from a lineage of brown people who struggled, just like the young men who stand out, out on the street on my block, who were occupied, just like the young men who stand out on the street on my block. And I can see them as fully human, called by God to exercise dominion in the world. And I can see them as ones who are capable of making choices, good and bad. And I can interact with them as human. And so I started to say hi to them. And hi grew into conversations. And conversations grew into one of them actually helping me to plant my planter last week (laughs) (laughs) out in front of the house. And like he literally sprinkled seeds into the planter with me. And and I was amazed to hear that he, he knew about daffodils, right? So that was my other planter. I planted daffodils and he and I have been waiting for them to come up. But you see, like yeah. that, it's the creation of ties. It's the choosing to be connected rather than the choosing to stay apart. That's the choice we have. That's beautiful. Brown Jesus creating the circle of universal belonging. Yes. Lisa, thank you. Thank you, Miroslav. production of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture at Yale Divinity School. This episode featured author and activist Lisa Sharon Harper and theologian Miroslav Wolf. Production assistance by Martin Chan and Nathan Jowers. Special thanks to Lisa Sharon Harper and Katie Zimmerman. Visit freedomroad.us to learn more about how Lisa and her team are using narrative and history to work for a more just world. I'm Evan Rosa and I edited and produced the show. For more information, visit us online at faith.yale.edu. New episodes drop every Saturday with the occasional midweek. If you're new to the show, we're so glad that you found us. Remember to hit subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. And if you've been listening for a while, thank you, friends. If you're liking what you're hearing, I've got a request. Would you support us? It's pretty simple, really, and won't take much time. Here are some ideas. First, you could hit the share button for this episode in your app and send a text or email to a friend or share it to your social feed. Second, you could give us an honest rating on Apple Podcasts. How are we really doing? Finally, you could write a short review of the show in Apple Podcasts. Reviews are cool because they'll help like-minded people get an idea for what we're all about and what's most meaningful to you, our listeners. Thanks for listening today, friends. We'll be back with more this coming week.